Welcome to this special midweek edition of the Southcrest Live podcast featuring the teaching of Dr. David Wilson. If this is your first time to listen, be sure to connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. And thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this message from our Wednesday night series. Well, they did good. What a great song, too. It's good to see you this evening. I am glad to be back with you. Um, there's no place like home, no place like you people. I uh, was asked about Sunday, and I got about as much response for, as if I had broken into J.C. Penney and preached to the mannequins. <laughs> so I am glad to at least hear you laugh. <laughs> Mannequin service, that's a new term for you. <laughs> you know what? Today, September 18th, 1988, was my first Sunday here as a pastor. So I've known some of you 31 years. Now, I want you all to get this math right. I was here 14 years and then went on a three-year mission trip. <laughs> I've been back 14 years today. So it's, it seems like it's impossible to have had two of those 14 years, but I'm not going anywhere this time, not until I die probably. <laughs> anyway, I, I got to thinking this morning, I said, you know what, I've known some of these people a long time. Of course, I was only 12 years old when I came as pastor. <laughs> Y'all made an old man out of me is what you've done. Open the Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at a, probably the most difficult passage in the New Testament, one of them. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1, I want to be, I, I told you last week that verses 3 through 14 form the longest sentence in the Bible. And it speaks about salvation and how God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit are involved in our salvation. God the Father is verses 3 through 6, Jesus Christ verses 7 through 12, and the Holy Spirit verses 13 and 14. And verses 3 through 6, ha 3 through 6 have a deep theological content, deep. So let's read beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We looked at that last Wednesday and all the blessings that we have. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask you to help us understand. We know that um, you are infinite. We will never understand completely all things about you, this side of heaven, and even then you'll still be God. And so, we need some clarification. We need some help. I pray that tonight, as confusing as it is, would at least help us to understand one thing most importantly, and that is salvation was your idea, and you called us to yourself. And so we ask you to help us tonight as we look at your word 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm reminded of an elderly lady who heard a distinguished uh, speaker addressed as Dr. So-and-so. And so she found her way after she heard him speak and asked shyly, Doctor, may I ask you a question? He said, certainly. And lately she said, I've been having a funny pain in my side. And the guest interrupted her and says, ma'am, I'm terribly sorry, but the truth is I'm a doctor of theology. Oh, she said with disappointment, I'm sorry. And then she turned away, but then she came back and said, by the way, just what kind of disease is theology? Tonight, we're going to look at a, a passage of Scripture that's been argued for hundreds of years. So if you think we're going to fix it tonight, not completely. And, and I already know, I already know there's going to be some people disagree with me. And did you know that's okay? We can disagree. Let me ask you this. Do you completely understand the Trinity This is right in line with the Trinity. There's some of it you can understand, some of it you can't understand. You just have to accept by faith. I'm going to give you several different sides of this, and I'm going to tell you what I believe, and if you disagree with me, that's okay. It's okay, it really is. I'm not going to argue with you about it because they've been arguing for four or 500 years about it, and it hasn't solved it yet, or more than that, actually. So, what I want you to understand is that you're no accident and you're no afterthought. You didn't just accidentally sneak up on God. Did you know that? Your salvation was no surprise to him because he knew about you before you were ever born. He knew about you before the world was ever created. So you are no afterthought. But with that in mind, our salvation was planned by the Father, and it says in verse 4 that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So the first truth I want you to see is that we've been chosen in the past. Now, here's the word election. You did not initiate salvation. God initiated salvation. And it was not your idea. It was God's idea. Now, for several hundred years before the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, i got to give you some history, and this is going to be deep, so hang in there with me. Put your boots on. For several hundred years before the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church had devolved into a works-based religion where salvation was primarily dependent on man with some enablement from God, but primarily it was up to man. It was a works-based religion. And when the Reformation occurred in the 1500s, the Reformers reversed the equation to the idea that man had no role in salvation, but it was all God, that he did everything. So it was a, a reversal of that. And there were a lot of good things about the Reformation. But it was not a return to biblical Christianity, nor to the church in the first four centuries of its purity, but rather it was a return to a fifth century teaching by a church father named Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, especially his views on election. The reformers retained several unbiblical practices such as 
they still believe there ought to be a state church. They, they believed the right to persecute and to put to death those who disagreed with them. That's very biblical, isn't it? They also um, practiced infant baptism, and they had inaccurate views on communion. Now, Baptists, by the way, were never part of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. There were Baptistic-type groups in many names that existed apart from the Catholic Church beginning in the 5th century. They were in pockets all over Europe, but eventually they were being stamped out one by one as heretics by the Catholic Church, and then later by Protestants also, only they kept popping up other different places, sort of like that whack-a-mole game. They just kept popping up different places. Couldn't get rid of them. And for a couple of, if you want to read some history about this, here's your couple of books about these Baptistic-type groups that existed alongside the Catholic Church long before the Reformation. There's a book titled The Pilgrim Church by E.H. Broadbent, and there's a book called The Baptist by Jack Hoad, H-O-A-D. Broadbent, The Pilgrim Church, E.H. Broadbent, or The Baptist by Jack Hoad. But one of the most important of the reformers was a man by the name of John Calvin. You already know, you already heard of Calvinism. He wrote what's called the Institutes of Religion. It was a thorough, systematic view of Augustine on his views of election. Are you with me so far? So Augustine was long before the Catholic Church, and then when the Reformers came, they went back, or John Calvin took Augustine's view of election for sure and systematized it, and, and it became known as Calvinism. Now, today, it could be called hyper-Calvinism. So let's, let's talk about Calvinism. Basically, it takes the doctrine of election and says that God has already chosen who's going to be saved. He's already predetermined and chosen who's going to be lost, and there's not anything you can do about it. In the 18th century, when William Carey, the father of the modern missionary movement, stood up in a church in England and begged for pastors and the Christians to send missionaries to Africa, there was an old Calvinistic preacher who stood up and said, young man, sit down. When God gets ready to save the heathen, he will do it without your help meaning there's not a thing you can do about it. Now, I believe salvation is of God, but, but, that, but Calvinists, there's basically five points. Now, basically, I'm, I'm speaking in generalities, but basically there's five points to Calvinism or some of them today. If you adhere to all five of these, you might be called a hyper-Calvinist. But here's what they are. First of all, total depravity. Man is totally depraved. He's not even able to repent. God has to do that for you or God has to help you. He essentially has no genuine free will that God initiates the work. He even gives you the faith to be saved. He does absolutely all of it. That you're so depraved, you can't even talk to God right without his help. That's, that's what they mean by total depravity inability I put that in there the second is the unconditional election God's election is based on his sovereignty he's God he can do what he wants he chooses who he wants 
And so his own decisions, is, it's, it's not based on anyone's foreseen faith or decision. He just decides he's already picked who's going to be saved, who's going to be the elect. He's, it's sovereign, unconditional. The second thing, the third thing is limited atonement, which basically says that when Christ died on the cross, he shed his blood for those who have been elected, who are going to be saved, not for the whole world. Limited. He just died for the elect. He didn't die for the sins of the whole world. The fourth, irresistible grace. Grace is extended only to those who've been chosen. And the inter internal call by God's grace cannot be resisted. You're going to be saved. God has chosen you. You're going to be saved. It cannot be resisted. Those who've been chosen, who are the elect, it's not, it's, grace is not even extended to the non-elect. And the fifth is the perseverance of the saints, that God preserves the elect so that they persevere to the end. In other words, no chosen person is ever going to be lost. Now, this idea of hyper-Calvinism taken to its extreme, if you take it to its extreme, and, and many Calvinists will argue that this is not what they believe, and I'm not saying all of them do, but God's, if you take it to the extreme, God's already determined some are going to be saved eternally. God's already determined some are going to be sent to hell eternally, and there's nothing you can do about it. But the flaw with that is... 2 Peter 3.9, for example, says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's not, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So here's the problem. You can be a Calvinist, but you're going to have some pieces that don't fit in your puzzle. Well, as Calvinism spread... There was a man by the name of Jacobus Arminius. He challenged him. He challenged, he challenged Calvinism, and his views became known as Arminianism. So you've got Calvinism, and now you've got Arminianism. And for the past 450 years, Calvinists and Arminians have been finding it out at least that long. What are the, the points for Arminians are just the opposite of Calvin, Calvinism. Free will, for example. Man is a sinner who has the free will to cooperate with God's spirit and be born again, or you can resist God's grace and you can perish. All of you have been saved in here. I'm assuming most of you have. You probably remember that the, that the time that you gave your life to the Lord, you felt this call. You felt this urgency. That's the call of salvation. Arminians say, you could say no. Calvinist said, no, you can't say no. You're going to be saved. The second thing about Arminianism, they believed in conditional election. God's election is based upon his foreknowledge. He chooses those he knows are going to accept him and follow the gospel. Here's a good example. If you have children... <clears throat> If you have children and they're at the dinner table and you bring a bowl of mac and cheese and a bowl of broccoli sprouts and you say, choose which one you want to eat, 
I already know which one they're going to choose. The broccoli sprouts. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. They're, at least my kids, I already know, I already foreknow what they're going to choose. Macaroni and cheese. Well, in a similar way, God is saying, I'm not forcing anybody to follow me, but I already know who's going to. And so, the conditional election. I believe God knows everything I do. I, I believe in his sovereignty and his omniscience and his omnipresence. The third thing is unlimited atonement. When Christ died on the cross, he shed his blood for everyone. He made a provisional payment. A provi he paid a provisional price, but he didn't guarantee it to anybody. It's available, but not everybody's going to accept it. He didn't make anybody. He didn't, just because Jesus died for the sins of the world doesn't mean he guaranteed salvation for everybody because you still have to choose. That's what he's saying. Unlimited atonement. The fourth thing goes right along with it. Resistible grace. Grace can be resisted because God will not overrule man's free will. Man is born again when he believes in Jesus Christ and receives God's grace. And then they believe, Arminians believe that you can fall from grace. Those who are truly saved can lose their salvation by falling away from the faith. Now, not all Arminians agree on this. Some of them actually believe in eternal security of the believer. But these two systems of thought approach salvation from opposite ends. The, the, I guess the one good thing is that they both believe that God is the one who's involved in salvation, God the Father. Both systems have impressive and in, in convincing scriptural support, but they also have scriptural contradictions to their belief. That's what I'm saying. You can, if you're a Calvinist, you can put your puzzle together, but you're going to have to put a few pieces in your pocket because there's some left that don't fit. If you're an Armenian, you can put your puzzle together and you're going to have a few pieces left and you're going to put them in your pocket because they don't fit. Are you with me so far? Okay, I want all the Calvinists on this side, all the Armenians on this side. <laughs> I'm going to tell you where I stand. And it's on this third point. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm in the minority. I know that. But it still makes more sense to me than the other two. And so there will be an election class when we get to heaven to straighten all of us out. <laughs> but for lack of a better term, I call it, or it is called, I didn't name it, general vocational. Now, by general vocational, we mean that the election spoken of in the Bible is largely about a group of people of God and their God-given tasks and blessings. We're going to go through this. If you inspect closely how the Scriptures talk about election through the Bible, you're going to discover several things. The first thing is that God elected or chose Jesus Christ he is the elect. 
Now, stay with me on this. In the prophecies concerning Jesus, for example, in Isaiah 42, 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. And in that same chapter, verse 6, God says, I, the Lord, have called you, that is the Messiah, in righteousness, and will hold your hand and will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people as a light to the Gentiles. The New Testament writers quote this verse or allude to his special status as the chosen one or the elect one. Matthew 12, 17 and 18, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen. My beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. 1 Peter 2, 6. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. And so Jesus, as God's chosen one, was even known by his enemies. Because even at his crucifixion, Luke 23, 35 says, And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with him derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. So when God the Father says about Jesus both at his baptism and his transfiguration, what did he say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Scholars recognize that the term beloved is a synonym of chosen. This is my chosen son based on how it is used in the Messianic scriptures in the Old Testament, scholars say that's the same kind of word. This is my chosen son in whom I am well pleased. Now, in addition to these are many scriptures that talk about Jesus as being appointed to his mission and role as the suffering Savior. And I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, I don't think I wrote this down for you, so you're just going to have to listen or write it down. The election of Jesus had nothing to do with choosing him to salvation. Why? You ought to know this one. Because Jesus didn't need to be saved. He was sinless. He did not need salvation. Second, his choosing was for service to accomplish a purpose and a role and a destiny that God had for him chose for him to make for us. So the, so the touchstone of election in the Bible, to me, is that Jesus Christ is God's elect one. Now, that's important because what I'm going to tell you now, the second use of the elective terminology concerns the election of certain groups for selective service. God chose the priesthood and the Levites for service in the temple. 
In 1 Timothy 5.21, Paul speaks of the elect angels. Wait a minute. Angels don't need to be saved. Angels can't be saved. So who are the elect angels? They're chosen for a special task. Now, we know there are, there's a hierarchy of angels. Who's the chief angel? Michael, the archangel. I mean, there's different angels, but 1 Timothy 5.21, Paul speaks of the elect angels. There are ranks with certain ones who are prominent and others of lesser rank. In all these instances, the priesthood, the Levites, the angels, God's election of them had nothing to do with personal salvation, but with doing something, with serving or with privilege. It didn't have anything to do with salvation. The third, the third usage of elective terminology in God's, is God's choice of the nation of Israel. God's choice of Israel as a chosen group of people has been one of the greatest shaping forces in world history. God's choosing of Israel was not to salvation. God's choosing of Israel, in fact, in Romans 11, it's written that explains that Jews, because they were Jews by birth, does not guarantee that they will be saved. There are going to be a lot of Jews saved during the tribulation period. There are, a lot, there are being Jews being saved today. But all people born Jews were collectively God's chosen people. Even today, we look at them, or we consider them as God's chosen people, don't we? But when you go over there, there's very few of them. Well, I say that. There's, there's a lot of them don't even believe in God. But I still think they're God's chosen people. They've been elect. They've been chosen by God because they're Jews. Significantly, there's something worth noting that there's not one single scripture in the Bible that speaks of particular individual Jews, individual Jews being elected or chosen to eternal salvation. Usually talking to the Gentiles, talking to, but you don't find one about a Jewish person. So, what was the election of Israel for? If it wasn't for salvation, it was for purpose, for a role, for a destiny to carry out God's will in the world. He chose the Jewish people for the line of Jesus' birth, for the the um, the line by which Jesus was born. Jesus was a Jew was born a Jew. So I hope you're seeing, so far we've seen that the overall sweep of election has nothing to do with somebody's eternal salvation. But it's mostly corporate in that it deals with groups rather than individuals, and it has to do with choosing these groups for certain purposes to do certain things. Fourth, when the elective terminology is used of particular individuals, it has to do with choosing them to serve and not to eternal salvation. Look through the Bible. Has God ever picked any one person to do something? God chose Abraham, but Abraham still had to be saved by faith because James bears that out. Romans does too. He chose Abraham, Nehemiah 9, 7. He chose Jacob, Psalm 135. He chose Moses in Numbers 16, 5. He chose David, 1 Samuel 13, 13, and 14. And individual prophets, for example, Jeremiah. 
in Jeremiah 1.4, and Amos in, Jer- in Amos 7.14. But the point is that election terminology concerning the individuals in the Old Testament never had to do with their salvation. It had to do with choosing them to serve and to do something. In the New Testament, when God chose the apostles, the 12, did he automatically give them salvation? Hmm. Because one of them didn't make it. He chose them to do something, didn't he? Well, the New Testament, Jesus chose the apostles. He chose Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. You see, the Old Testament is silent about the election of a particular group to salvation, but speaks of God choosing corporate groups for his purposes and when individuals are chosen they're elected to serve and now Ephesians 1 back to here Ephesians chapter 1 it's considered the key to understanding election in the New Testament but I want you to notice with me it says in verse 4 just as he chose us in him he did not say he chose us for him in him in fact Ephesians 1 drips with this concept let's let's look at it look at verse 1 to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus verse 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us with every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4, we're chosen in him. In verse 6, in the beloved, which is him, Jesus. In verse 7, in him. In verse 9, in himself. In verse 10, in Christ and in him. In verse 11, in whom. In verse 13, two times, in Christ. In verse 20, in in whom is in verse 11 and in verse 13, and then in Christ in verse 20. Now, what do all of these references tell us? I personally believe that Paul's not teaching about election of individuals to salvation, but rather to the election of a people. All of those who are in Christ are who? The elect. All of us who are in Christ are the church. We're the church. We're we're the following in Christ. We are in him. And when you understand that Christ is the chosen of God and we are chosen in him, Christ is the beloved of God and we're accepted in the beloved, you begin to understand that because I'm in Christ... Because I'm in Christ, now I'm predestined to do something. In his book, in their book, I should say, this is the name of a book, God's Strategy in Human History, R.T. Forster and V.P. Marston. Regarding Ephesians 1, let me read what they said. We are chosen in Christ. This does not mean that we were chosen to be put into Christ. It does not mean that God chose to make us repent but left others unrepentant. It means that we 
as we repented and were born again into the body of Christ, we partake of his chosenness. He is chosen, and we are chosen in him. When we're in him, we're part of the chosen. This was, of course, planned by God in his foreknowledge even before the world began. Another book, Election and Predestination, Samuel Fisk. These are real light readings, by the way. <laughs> if you're having trouble sleeping at night, you need to open one of these up and start reading it. Pre listen to what they say. Predestination, Samuel Fisk, election and predestination. Predestination and election do not refer to certain people of the world becoming saved or lost, but they relate to those who are already children of God in respect to certain privileges or positions out ahead. They look forward to what God will work in those who have become his sons. Thus the believer is elect not because he was personally picked out, to be saved, but rather when a believer places his faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, he becomes one of the elect. And then when you read the next verse, it says, having predestined you. Now notice verse 5 does not say that God predestined us to be saved, but rather to a certain privilege. When you are in Christ, you have been predestined to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. When you're in Christ, God says, you're part of my family. I predestined that when, you're, when you follow Jesus. If you understand the Bible, the biblical election as first general and second vocational, it changes the focus of many of the debates about election. William Klein put it this way, the debates often center on the issue of asking has God chosen specific individuals to save? And if so, was it on the basis of foreseen faith or simply a matter of God's sovereign will? We have concluded that this question does not trouble the biblical writers. God has chosen to save a people. And in New Testament language, that people is the church. In the old covenant, a person entered the chosen nation of Israel through natural birth. In the new covenant, a person enters the chosen body, the church, through the new birth. To exercise faith in Christ is to enter into his body and become one of the chosen ones. God has sovereignly chosen that sinners can be saved by grace. And that faith in Christ, when we trust in Jesus by faith, we are in Christ. Thus, we're part of the body of Christ. That's what Romans 11 teaches. And when a person exercises his free will to enter into God's sovereign plan, he becomes one of God's elect because why? He's in Christ. Folks, I want to tell you, you and I don't have any hope if we're not in Christ. And when you follow Jesus with this, with this idea, you don't have to go to elaborate lengths to explain the obvious contradiction of why a God who is love 1 John 4, 8 says God is love. And in 1 John 4, 16, then a loving God, why would he create billions of people to send them to hell? See, that's a contradiction to me. 
And how do you, and then the, then the contradiction of whosoever will may come. So you don't have to worry if you're one of the chosen ones by God or you don't have to find assurance in your works because the Arminians got to keep working to keep their salvation and then the Calvinists are wondering if they're really one of the chosen. And, if, and if, what if I die and I'm not one of the chosen even though I believed? And then what does that do when a child dies? Can you not stand and say, I, know, I believe this child went to heaven? Well, it depends if they were one of the chosen. What kind of hope is that? Well, I get, I get a little passionate about it. But here's the glorious truth about God the Father's part in salvation. He changes us for the future. Now let's talk about predestination here. If I am elect in Christ, Christ is the elect one. I place my faith in Jesus. Now I'm one of the elect. Now, what, now what's supposed to happen? It says in verse 4, he has chose, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. In other words, some people, when they hear, the, they hear this predestination thing, they immediately go to that, well, I'm predestined to go to heaven or I'm predestined to go to hell. Now, the only way I'm going to go to heaven is in Christ. But when I receive Christ and place my faith in Christ, I am predestined. If you've got an airplane ticket to Dallas, you go to the airport and if you get on the right plane, you're going to Dallas. You're predestined to go to Dallas. Luggage, who knows where that's going. <laughs> Your luggage is not always predestined. <laughs> but God is saying, your destination that I have already prearranged for you is to be like Jesus. Because when you place your faith in Christ, God says, I've already determined your, your, my will for you is to become more like him, to grow in him. Some people get this predestination thing. They're, they're a little confused about it. In the early days of the Republic of Texas, when the Indians were especially bad, there was an old primitive Baptist preacher who was preparing for a long trip across the Indian country, and he was especially careful in cleaning and loading the long rifle that was going to go with him. And a friend, seeing his preparation and knowing his belief in predestination, said to him, Uncle Billy, why are you so careful about your gun? If you meet the Indians and you're predestined to die at that time, you'll die anyway, so why worry about the gun? What is to be will be anyway, you know. And Uncle Billy said, yeah, I know all about that, but it might be the Indians' time. Okay, you say, no, wait a second, Pastor. I, I know I'm a, I'm a Christian, but you know, I, I'm not always holy and I'm not always blameless and there's still sin in my life from time to time. But here's what predestination is. God takes you from where you are 
And he wants to begin to change you into what he wants you to become. He wants you to become holy and blameless. When you are in Christ, you're predestined to become holy and blameless. He wants you to, to head that way. People say, well, I want to know God's will. What's God's will for my life? It's right here. It's God's will. God, God's will for your life is to be like Jesus. God's trying to change you gradually to be more like Christ. And, and we're talking about the inner qualities, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith, self-control as you become more like Christ. That's what God's predestined you to do. Don't get tripped up on that word. If I join the army, there's some things that are already predestined for me. Boot camp. I'll be stationed somewhere, wherever they want me to go. I mean, I already know if I join up with certain, it's already decided what's going to happen to me. Well, if I follow Christ, I'm now in the elect. It's predestined for me to become like him. Listen, if it's still a little confusion, just remember we're talking about an infinite God. And I told you, you may not, I, I don't completely understand all of it, but I do. This makes more sense to me than the other two. The third thing is that we are consecrated in Jesus Christ. We are accepted. Look at verse 6. To the praise and of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved, in Jesus. Now, the word here is, is a, a, a word kin to the word grace. It actually means graciously accepted or embraced in the arms of his grace. We are set apart because of his grace. God chose us in him. That is, who come, the people who come to Christ. I know that Jesus said, no man can come to the Father except the Father bid him come. I remember the night I gave my life to Christ. I felt the call of God. I, I can't describe it to you. I just knew the Lord was speaking to my heart. I didn't hear an audible voice, but I know he's speaking to me. But I believe in my heart I could have said no. I'm sure glad I didn't. Folks, salvation is not partly of God and partly of man. It's all of God. But he allows us. If, if, he, would have, if he wanted to make us robots, he could have, and there would have never been any sin in the world. But he gave us. We're created in his image. He gave us the choice. Even after Adam and Eve sinned, they still talked to God. God spoke to them in the garden. And so I hope that I've not done anything to add to your confusion. I'm not a Calvinist. I have friends who are. I have a lot of friends who are, and they could probably debate me into a hole. If you are one of those, don't do it. I'm not interested. I'm not changing my mind. 
If you're an Armenian, you know what? I'm, I got a little Calvinism in me. I'm, I'm not a hyper-Calvinist, but I believe in the depravity of man. I don't believe we're so depraved we can't respond to God. But, and I believe in the perseverance of the saints. I believe in eternal security. I believe once you're saved, you're going to stay saved because God did it. And I guess there's a little bit of Armenian in me because I believe that you can respond to the Lord. I believe that you can say no. I do not believe that you can lose your salvation. So, so I'm a little part of that. But I go to the point, I don't believe it's really talking about election for individuals to be saved. I believe that Jesus is the elect and in him we are the elect. That's as close as I can get to it. And so if you're more confused... Ask my dad. He knows it all. (laughs) All I know is, I do know this, you must be in Christ. And if if you're in Christ, you don't have to sit around worrying about this. I also know that the Lord told us to go out and tell others, just like they sang, Mike and Kim sang about a moment ago. We're supposed to be telling everybody about somebody who saved us. We're supposed to tell the world. And so we're going to let God lead this to the people, and God will speak to hearts. And, and he knows. I believe he knows everything, but I still believe it comes back to being saved in Jesus Christ. It's going to get a lot easier next week. (laughs) Thank you for being here tonight. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. And, and, And we're grateful, Lord, we are for the things we do know. There's a lot of things we don't know. But we do know that when we place our trust and our life and our faith in Jesus, that we are saved and forgiven and we have eternal life with you, and that you begin to change us from the inside out, and that one day we go to heaven. That's all been predestined for us. But thank you that we are in Christ. And for those tonight who may not be in Christ, we pray that you will help them come to that place in their life. Help us to be patient with people who disagree with us. But most of all, to just point people to Jesus who saves who saves to the uttermost. We pray for our services Sunday, Lord, as we even talk about heaven. May it be an encouragement to people as we still talk about our Father who is in heaven. And we pray, Lord, that people will come to know you as their Savior. Thank you again for these wonderful folks. Thank you for the privilege of being here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, folks. Thanks for listening to this installment of the Southcrest Wednesday Night Series featuring Senior Pastor David Wilson. Remember, you can also live stream our Sunday and Wednesday services. Go to southcrestlive.tv for more details or to southcrest.org to learn more about Southcrest Baptist Church. And thanks for listening.